it easy for, for people in our socioeconomic position to, to criticise cancel culture because, you know, it's not coming for us? But it is coming for us. It's coming for everyone. I see cancel culture as a circular gun. Yes, you may be firing it at who you want to fire it at right now, but eventually you're going to fire it yourself. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. It's hard for me to imagine Australian comedy television without Andrew Denton. Via The Money or the Gun, Live and Sweaty, Enough Rope, Denton and a slew of other shows. He's shaped Australian television and helped birth shows such as The Chaser. I last interviewed Andrew a generation ago, in 1993, when I was a journalist on the Sydney University student newspaper On Soir. And I'll ask him a few questions about that interview in our conversation today. Andrew, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thank you, Andrew. So I've talked in the, the introduction a bit about the people who you've influenced, but I wanted to start off with the people who influenced you. Uh, how what shaped your knowledge of, of what Australian television was and how could it be? And uh, maybe you'll tell us a little bit about Norman Gunston for those who don't know him. Okay. Uh, just before I answer that, I'm still trying to get my head around the fact you interviewed me when you were at Sydney University. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's, I do feel like the grandfather of you right now. You were 33. I was 33. Okay, so Norman Gunston, uh, in 1974, 75, Norman Gunston, who was played by the actor Gary MacDonald, was a, uh, a spoof Tonight Show host who uh, uh, was as cringingly Australian as it's possible to be. But he had on this extraordinary guests, you know, people like uh, uh, Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney, and he would ask them the most outrageous questions, not in that shock way that we might have got used to with someone like Ali G, but as this character, he had, um, he had a little bit of toilet paper on his face where he cut himself shaving, he had this horrendous comb over and he spoke in a cringingly Australian way and he was trying to be uber cool and he was anything but. And he would ask these apparently sincere questions. So for instance, at Paul McCartney's press conference, he said to him, uh, is it true uh, that you're dead? Uh, which was, of course, <laughs> and and uh, people from overseas mostly loved him. Um, and, and perhaps uh, one of the the uh, greatest moments in Australian political history, Andrew, um, which says a lot about Australia, is that when Gough was dismissed, um, Norman Gunston and his team, and I ended up working with this executive producer, flew down and were on the steps of Old Parliament House as all that turmoil was arising and they filmed there. And uh, there is some footage of um, Norman in his character going up to Bob Hawke. I don't remember the question, but Bob saying to him, ah, Norman, this is too serious. And <laughs> Norman just looks to the camera and goes, you're right, this is too serious. So <laughs> he, was, he was long before Tom Gleeson. Uh, he was on the ABC. It became this huge hit and a huge surprise hit. He ran a public campaign to win the Gold Logie. And he did. 
and um, he was. I had grown up watching uh, Don and Bert Newton and Graham Kennedy and Ernie Sigley and and you know, particularly Graham and Bert had a lot of talent. But basically, it was the same cosy club of people on Australian television. And when I saw Norman Gunston, I thought, yes, you're speaking to me. <laughs> you're saying that this is boring. So when you were on uh, uh, Doug Mulray in the uh, 1980s, were you subconsciously thinking, I want to be Norman Gunston? No, I didn't want to be Norman Gunston. Um, uh, but I did. what I liked about Gunston was uh, the iconoclasm of it. And I certainly wanted to... Um, I wanted to rattle some cages, not mindlessly, just cages I felt deserved some rattling. And, and one of those cages was the, the kind of, as I said, the cosy nature of Australian television where youth television, because I was then youth, I was in my late 20s, was pretty much confined to uh, rock clips, you know, uh, video clip shows. And, um, and that was it. There was nothing really representing people under the age of 30. Uh, as I said, if, you know that old thing they used to say about the Australian cricket team, it was harder to get out of it than into it. Uh, well, that was very much the case of Australian television. Once you were in, you were set and you would have a show uh, until you died or possibly beyond. And you also uh, were shaped through improv acting too. I, I got to know, I think, first through theatre sports. Uh, I was playing in the early 1990s. You would uh, you were by then a judge, having uh, come runner-up in the Cranston Cup in 1987. Uh, what, did, what did you take from theatre sports and the improv scene in Sydney? Oh, very important things, and uh, and not just me. If, if The ABC ran a one-time television series. It didn't quite work for television, but you'll also see in that first series alongside me, in their first appearances, Glenn Robbins and Sean McAuliffe. Uh, I took really important lessons, which has stood me in good stead professionally and sometimes personally uh, ever since. Um, uh, the first two lessons were, were don't block and don't wimp. And what that means is when somebody throws an idea at you, don't just go no, uh, try and play with it. So it, it uh, enforced a, a mental agility. Even if the idea seemed impossible, it, it built your muscles and mental agility. But the best lesson I learned, which I've employed many times and not just in my career, is when in doubt, change the routine. So when something feels like it's not working for you, change it up, change it down, move it sideways. I remember being struck by one of my theatre sports teachers who always said, if you walk off the stage and you feel as though the scene is bombed, uh, you wave your hand behind your backside as though you've just farted on the stage. And she said it's incredibly <laughs> important in order to separate the scene from the actor. So you don't step off going, I'm a hopeless actor. You step off saying, oh, I did a thing that bombed, but me as a person uh, st still, still continues. That's that's very good advice, and I would say that was the other key lesson from theatre sports, which is that failure is all right. Uh, it's okay to fail, and you will fail. Uh, it's not that you fail; it's how you, what you learn from failure, how you move on from it. Sometimes failure is extremely funny. Uh, one of the things you've sort of talked about as, as maybe a failure is, uh, is your time in doing uh, House from Hell, uh, one of the sort of early forerunners of Big Brother and those reality TV shows. Um, how do you feel when you, when you look back on, on your role in, in that sort of uh, creation of a hothouse environment for young people? Well, I feel, first of all, that uh, I missed out on my best shot of being a billionaire because uh, House from Hell, which is a radio competition I devised whereby we put I think it was six or eight people in a house for many months and uh, made the house this kind of malign presence that they had to survive. 
Um, Give us an example of some of the things you did. Well, an example was, for instance, I think uh, on one occasion, um, because we were broadcasting every day, that the people that lived in the house uh, complained about the furniture. And so uh, they, they all had to go out to work and they came back and there was no furniture in the house at all. So then they complained about that quite reasonably. So the next day when they came home, there was so much furniture they couldn't move. I was literally stacked to the ceiling. So the house was like this living thing, only we were controlling it. Um, and, and the reason I say I missed out on being a billionaire is that many years later, um, the, the creator of uh, Big Brother, which obviously was the one that, uh, along with Survivor, changed the face of uh, modern television. Um, the House from Hell preceded that, and when he learnt about it, he was terrified that uh, we were going to get in ahead of him. Anyway, uh, to answer your question, um, that was done as a radio competition, uh, and it came about because when I first went to Triple M, I inherited a competition called Live In It To Win It, which had four people that had to live in a car, and the last one out won it. And uh, over the course of however many weeks it ran, these people were actually really interesting. They struck up friendships, um, and I thought that dynamic, that human dynamic, is fascinating, which is what led me to a much bigger idea, the house from hell. However, as we got into the house from hell, and, and there was no guidelines for it, um, nobody had really done this before, but we must have had enough insight into what we were doing to... We did uh, psychologically test people to see if they were compatible to, I guess, this pressure. But something happened about two months in. It went for a long time, Andrew. Um, the youngest contestant, we discovered something about her we hadn't known, which is that um, the year before, one of her closest friends had taken their own life, which put her as a young woman in that risk category. And she was getting quite depressed. And we immediately uh, took her out of that environment, sat it down and said, look, it's, this is just a radio competition. Nothing is worth your health. We can contrive to take you out of this, you know, we'll work out. And she said, no, I want to stay. So we had, a, I think, a month to go and we changed everything from being competitive and combative to being constructive. And the final challenges we set was each person achieving a life goal. But I remember saying to the people I worked with and to the management at the radio station I worked with at the time, we're never going to go back there again. That's this is playing with fire. Um, it, it, and I do believe there's been a lot of irresponsible behaviour since, uh, whereby people, um, uh, their emotions and the the turmoil that uh, we as the producers had some control over, if not a lot of control over, uh, can be damaging. And the only defence I have for myself is we did it first, and we came to realise it. We weren't able to go to school on anyone else. So you've become much more sensitive to those issues as, uh, as, as you've gone through your career. And, and I suppose I think in some sense the bookend to that uh, House from Hell incident is the way you managed Angry Anderson's interview on Enough Rope, uh, which seemed to be done with such an extraordinary degree of, of care and sensitivity to allow him to... Uh, Tell tell something of the story of how the loss of his son had, had affected him. Um, tell tell me about how you how you managed that. Well, uh, thank you for mentioning that. And the first thing I should explain is that it wasn't just me. I had uh, two producers, and one in particular, who spent a lot of time on multiple occasions talking with Angry and his uh, daughter ahead of that interview, um, and. Uh, collectively, we we said to Angry, 
um, you should only do this interview if there is if you think there is value in it, uh, and not even necessarily value to you, but whatever you define value as being. If you have any doubts that there's value in this, then don't do it. So we, uh, right from the start, tried to set a ground rule of um, this is for the greater good, but only if you feel it's for the greater good. Um, and it was an unusual interview in that uh, it was the questions and the answers weren't negotiated beforehand, but the emotional temperature was. And one of the... Um, one of the things that Angry made very clear is he didn't want to actually uh, use his son's name, uh, which is unusual in a conversation like that. Mm. But um, so when we got to the actual interview, and some people in the audience found that very peculiar, um, we had already negotiated uh, as safe a space as we possibly could, uh, because I can't imagine a greater pain than that that Angry and his family have been through. And um, I work uh, with a group of people, a really intelligent, interesting group of people, quite, quite a wide range of people, and we spent a long time discussing what's the best way to have this conversation. This is a really hard conversation to have in private, let alone in public. Um, and so... Uh, we did that thing which is, uh, I think, often useful in many forms of communication. We started the interview by, by telling the story of what the story of the interview was going to be. We're going to talk about these four things and let's start with this one. Um, but it was still deeply emotionally fraught. And I was, um, you know, I have uh, faced criticism in my career for, quote unquote, making people cry. Um, it's not a criticism I really appreciate because uh, I can assure you uh, when that happens it's a very uncomfortable thing it's not something I seek uh, but at the same time I don't think tears are an emotion we should be um, uh, ashamed of they're, they're a very important human emotion so um, uh, but I was keenly aware that angry in particular was um, so fragile and I didn't want him to break. So I was trying to help him not to break and, and fortunately uh, his uh, young, or well not young, his strong daughter was there and she was fantastic and, and in a way she helped, she was almost like the other interviewer, she helped guide her father mm. through what he needed to say. And uh, um, it's funny, even as, as we talk about it now, I feel myself back there. It was a it was a very weighty thing to carry. You're one of Australia's great interviewers and, and famously you don't have a set of notes in front of you when you're, uh, you're, you're interviewing. Uh, tell us about what your preparation looks like in the lead up to, to an interview. Uh, usually it's a research brief um, and my researchers are under instructions to, to go back to theatre sports to look left. Um, don't just go to the Wikipedia, don't just go to the chronology, but look somewhere else. Look to see not what Andrew Lee said about his career, but what did Bob Hawke say about Andrew Lee's career? Uh, or, you know, what does Anthony, what did Anthony Albanese say in his cups about Andrew Lee once? <laughs> so, first of all, look left. So I'll get a research brief about 
anywhere between 60 and 120 pages. Um, I'll usually listen to uh, interviews or watch interviews because I want to get a sense of how the person is. Um, uh, I'll sit with my producers and we'll talk at length about that research brief and what we think are the things we would like to know and how we might address them. Sometimes that's straightforward, sometimes as with Angry it's very complex. And um, I will take note of questions, suggested questions I like, then I'll go away and I'll spend probably about a day writing an interview script. It's usually broken up into little sections, there's a logic flow to it, and I'll bring that back to the meeting and we'll pick it apart. Uh, then I'll go back and rewrite it. And and if this sounds hugely anal, <laughs> it is, because um, uh, sometimes just the right word or just the wrong word in a question can make all the difference to how that person hears the question. So I remember once interviewing uh, the singer Natalie Imbruglia and um, she had had great success in England and then she kind of fell down a rabbit hole. And while there was no clear reference to it, uh, I wondered if um, leading the life she'd led, uh, you know, she'd partied a lot. And, and I remembered, I didn't want to ask her, you know, did you do drugs? The question in the end was along the lines of, it must have been tempting to flirt with drugs at this time, which is an open way of asking the question. If I'd said, did you take drugs? I think that the shutters would have gone up. So a lot of thought was given to sometimes a word in a question. And having done all that, I would memorise it. Um, plus I'd have this, I wanted a map in my head of that person's world, not just of what are the questions and the answers. So that if, if it went somewhere unexpected, I was comfortable in that world, comfortable enough to move to another part of it. Do you find interviews work better when you're doing the organisation thematically or chronologically? You know, I remember a New Yorker writer once saying, if you've got a choice between the two, go chronological because we're, we're, humans are storytelling creatures and it's tough to, orga to, to, to organise material in your head uh, thematically. But, but maybe you've got a different view. I always start chronologically. So the first thing in a research brief is uh, the chronology of that person's life, the key points. And it's not just career. It's when were they born? When did their parents die? When were their kids born? You know, all the key points. So that's, if you like, the metronome. But uh, um, some interviews, uh, the person suggests something entirely different. Um, one of my favourites was a British actress called Miriam Margulies. Um, fans of Harry Potter will know as Professor Sprout, who was uh, the most wonderfully candid interviewee I think I've ever met. And um, each interview brief would also start with... Well, we should be, should be clear about that. You asked her about oral sex and she very ha happily uh, dived, dived into answering the question. She did. And, and in fact, she said, and if, uh, am I allowed to use uh, fruity language? And yes. Are you comfortable with that? She said, um, uh, to give you an example of a candid, she said... My parents always told me, uh, don't fuck, suck. Um, <laughs> but the, the thing about, so each research brief would have two or three quotes, which would give you a sense of where that person was coming from. But when I got Miriam's research brief, it had a page and a half of quotes, and every one of them was a bell ringer. So I actually built that interview around her quotes, and inclu including um, uh, being told by the Queen to shut up, and, and also... In fact, even before the interview, uh, one of my producers came <laughs> and said um, she'd done this, to go back to the theme of farting, done this enormous fart right in front of them and apologised. 
So I, Miriam was just one of these people. I felt I could ask anything. And uh, um, that's right, one of the quotes was about, I said, you, you've said that you quite like picking your nose in public. Why is that? And there was a pause and she went, discovery. <laughs> and then sometimes it doesn't work. Why, why didn't your interview with Jeff, Jeff Kennett work? Uh, well, that was absolutely my mistake, and that was a really good example of structuring an interview wrong. So um, I had first encountered Jeff uh, before he became Premier of Victoria at a pilot for a show Wendy Harmer did, and he was uh, a, just a brilliantly entertaining communicator, funny, sharp. And then I'd uh, met him several times privately, and uh, um, and I, you know, Jeff... Uh, famously and wonderfully got very involved with Beyond Blue and I I was speaking to him privately and it, he didn't say it in as many words but it was clear to me that um, Beyond Blue was something that was also in his life not just something he had focused his work on uh, and he wanted to, obviously the point of the interview was to talk about Beyond Blue and I was very happy to do that and I wanted to get to um, that where the line was between his work and and where they sat in his world. Uh, and I guess being a politician, and and with due respect by my least uh, favourite category of people to interview for reasons which won't surprise you, with some exceptions, um, he saw the interview as being very transactional. And uh, it was one of those interviews where I was more chronological because I thought if I'm going to get to, in my thinking, if I'm going to get to more difficult questions about uh, whether or not you've dealt with depression, Jeff, uh, I couldn't just go straight there. So I was going through chronologically and, and he just became more and more like, no, I just want to talk about Beyond Blue. And uh, um, it, just, it just didn't work. If I'd started at Beyond Blue perhaps and then circled back round to his own uh, emotional state, that might have worked better. But, you know, they, uh, back to theatre sports, not everything works. Sometimes... Um, a failure. I remember uh, famously at the end of an interview with Russell Crowe, who I've known for many years, I challenged him to a, um, a gladiator-like duel, duel. And we, you know, the ABC with its budget of $8.50, we, we actually had extras dressed up as Roman soldiers. It was a big, ridiculous set piece and Russell absolutely refused to play along. He just stood there like, no, I'm not doing it. And people said to me afterwards, wasn't that embarrassing? I said, no, I actually thought it was pretty uh, a pretty interesting... Uh, <laughs> cast a pretty interesting light on Russell. It was quite funny. Why is that? Because he was not willing to go off off the script? He needed to be in control. Right. And that was okay. So I wasn't embarrassed. I was amused. Mm. It was was kind of funny. Uh, And I thought, we actually found out something about him that I wouldn't have found out any other way. But it was a very um, tortuous way to get there. I mean, since you mentioned political interviewing, I just notice a massive contrast between the sorts of interviews I do once every couple of years when I bring a book out, which are a true conversation, and the standard political interviews, which are much more akin to, uh, to an interrogation, uh, mm. where the object is not to explore ideas together, uh, but to garner a, con- a confession. Uh, so you know, I think that's part of, part of the reason why so, so many political interviews are essentially unwatchable. Mm. 
what is it that uh, you've learned from interviewing which flows through to the, to the, to the rest of your life? I mean, most, uh, mo most of our listeners won't be professional interviewers, uh, but what, do you, what, what are some of the, the things about being a good interviewer that flow through to being a good person? Well, I think the basic skills of interviewing uh, I've always had and I've tried to nurture, which is uh, uh, to be as strongly empathetic as I can. Um, uh, my son told me something recently, which is a lovely, um, uh, I don't know where it came from, but it was a lovely way of thinking about, we all have moments in our lives where people turn to us uh, seeking help or advice. And the quote he gave me was, do you want me to fix this or do you want me just to listen? And I like that. And uh, so I think it's something I try and apply in my life as much as possible, which is uh, to listen. This might surprise my family <laughs> when I say that. Um, uh, one of the things that, um, particularly enough rope, which was, I can't remember, it was 600 interviews in five years. It was a very, it was like a big public university of the human soul. And uh, one of the things I saw so clearly, there's an American uh, songwriter called Loudon Wainwright III who said that our childhood is never history, childhood is always there. And what I saw almost without exception... Very Freudian. It, yeah, is that... Um, Childhood is the rocket fuel for most people. It's either I, I so want to emulate one parent or the other or I so don't want to be that person that um, uh, if you want the answer to where most people are coming from, go there. Well, let's go there. Um, your father, uh, Kit Denton, uh, wrote uh, The Breaker, which was later turned into a, a successful movie and uh, was, a, was a, a real man's man. How... Did growing up with a father like that shape you? And, and what are the lessons you learned for being a father, both good and bad? That's a complex question. Dad was uh, an extremely um, uh, educated, self-educated in many ways, uh, talented, funny, very funny man who had a uh, was capable of a fierce temper. It was a bit like when a bushfire crowns through the forest, it sucked the oxygen out of the room. Um, he was uh, both very loving and very demanding. And I think all of those things in different ways um, have appeared in my own parenting and not all of them in ways I like and uh, not all of them in ways my son has liked. And, and we have, uh, we've talked about that quite a lot over recent years. But it's, it's also probably not right just to talk about my father because my mother was um, was a much gentler person and uh, um, she used to <laughs> she used to uh, worry about me a lot. I, th I think she thought I was, I think both my parents thought I was a bit um, unusual. Uh, not not that ne that's necessarily a bad thing but um, they just worried how I would fit in and they needed to worry because I wasn't uh, that concerned about fitting in. Um, uh, what else can I say about that? I mean, it, look, it's so hard to, uh, to summarise a parent and that relationship in a, in a few words. I think, um, you know, my father's very ethical. He was very strong-minded. Uh, professionally, he was 
in my industry, but from a much older generation, he had a powerful influence on me, but not the way he would have perhaps chosen, which was I saw him and many of his friends who were, you know, talented people. I saw how often they were left at the altar by a, a network or a production company. And uh, so I came into the entertainment industry unusually combative uh, about contract negotiations and absolutely prepared to fight my quarter and um, that stood me in very good stead I might add. <laughs> you were very um, young when you set up Zapper to films I mean that's uh, that's really striking. Yeah pretty young and I did that because uh, well I mean he just passed away uh, this week but Glenn Wheatley um, remember that famous story about him standing on the stage as the bass player of the Masters Apprentices and looking out and thinking gee management's doing well out of this maybe I should be a manager. Uh, I um, I came to the conclusion that uh, as I was coming up with my own ideas and, and in fact, um, from a very early age was bringing many of the key people in to work with me, then I should control those ideas. And I, I read an interview with Tom Gleisner from Working Dog once and he said, uh, people um, accuse us of being a control freak and I wonder in what sense that's a bad thing. If you're doing something and you want to be good, want it to be good, why wouldn't you want to control it? And I thought that was a pretty good attitude. Of course, um, uh, you can get to monomania and you can get to um, various levels of uh, corporate psychopathy and hopefully I've avoided those. Your dad also uh, had a lot of close male friendships and even used to uh, have blokes weekends. Have you taken that on in your own life? Is that, uh, has that shaped your, uh, your, your relationships with, uh, with other men? No, I have a lot of good male friends, but I'm not blokey in the way Dad was. Dad was the kind of guy that would... In fact, he was missing the top of two fingers and a bit of a thumb to a, uh, a, uh, an electric saw as he tried to build some furniture. Dad was a, an enthusiastic handyman whose work was not of the highest standard. I, I had... Um, I can barely make toast, Andrew. I don't have a practical bone in my body. I've got, I'm very pragmatic. I can organise. I can organise people to get things done, but uh, when it comes to building things and so on, so I'm not a bloke's bloke in that way. Um, so my male friendships tend to be on a more um, uh, cerebral, you know, I mean, uh, yes, I drink and all of that stuff, but a bloke's weekend for dad and his friends was to play cards, drink a lot, smoke a lot, um, uh, tell lots of jokes. That's not quite me. Um, I'm a more solitary person for a start. And uh, secondly, um, look, I, I guess I do have that one crucial blokes thing in Australia, which is I do genuinely love sport. And that is the lubricant for all Australian men. Uh, if they want to get on in society is uh, to, to be able to converse in fluent sportees. And that I can do. And I like to do it. Your dad also influenced you on the uh, the big campaign that you've been running in recent years around euthanasia. Um, tell us about his final days and, and how that led you into the euthanasia campaign. Well, Dad had been uh, sick for quite a long time and he was 67 and um, uh, he was taken to our local hospital. Um, he had congestive heart failure and... You know, it's. I don't know if you have been through losing a parent, Andrew, but it's it's profoundly shocking. Um, 
uh, and I had never uh, been up close to death before, so that was shocking in itself. But what was um, what stayed with me and with my sisters, and interestingly, we never spoke about this for uh, maybe twenty years because we just kind of went, "What was that?" Uh, it's not that anyone at the hospital was derelict; far from it. Um, they were doing their best, but Dad was given the stuff which even today is largely what you're given, uh, was morphine, um, which was supposed to settle his distress. Uh, and it didn't. It simply didn't. And he spent three days of moaning and threshing and uh, it was, it, it was um, he was in pain. He was suffering. And uh, there seemed to be nothing that could be done. And there was nothing done other than what was allowed to be done. And it was shocking. But as I said, we put it away. We just thought, well, that's what happens. That's, that's what happens at the end of life. And um, we're in a hospital and they know what they're doing and what can you do? Um, it wasn't until many, many years later uh, when I read an article in The Monthly by Australian writer called Margareta Poz, who, um, whose father was Dutch, where obviously they've had euthanasia laws for many years, and he was dying of cancer and he, she got the message saying, uh, he has an appointed date for his euthanasia, come home. So she spent uh, her last week, his last week with him, and she described the entirely opposite week to my father's, which was in a hospital um, suffering with us watching it, where he nobly and um, joyfully farewelled his friends, his family, his world, uh, got all his affairs in order, spent his last night looking at the stars and listening to Mozart, um, uh, was able to avoid the last horrible path of his cancer. And I just thought, why, why don't we have that here? Mm. Why, is, why is that not possible? And so that's what set me on a path which um, uh, unexpectedly has come to dominate this uh, part of my life. And the laws have changed remarkably quickly in the period and you set up uh, Go, Go Gentle and uh, hopefully you'll be able to disband the organisation within a year or two. Yeah. Uh, I, look, I would, on one level, I'd like to do that because the legislative task will be over, but I've, I've come to realise, and maybe we will, but I've come to realise that passing the law uh, is not the full story. Um, it's, the law's been in existence in Victoria now for two and a half years, and there has been some pretty disturbing behaviour from some medical professionals um, wishing to block or dissuade people from their legal right to use this law. There's still a lot of, um, there's still pockets of extreme arrogance, uh, and I would say almost cruelty within the medical profession towards end of life treatment. And there's still um, uh, a lot of understandable um, anxiety uh, within the medical profession and the community more broadly about, well, how do we approach this thing? How do we talk to people about this? What's the right way to listen? And I think the medical community at large is starting to ask itself questions, as it should, about are we over-treating people? Uh, have we lost the human being inside the machines that go bing? Yes, I loved Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, uh, and that, uh, that discussion as to how potentially uh, good palliative care can actually result in people living longer than they would uh, without uh, appropriate pain treatment. Um, well, the whole point of palliative care, which I 
strongly support. It's the only area of medicine which is not curative. It's, it's about helping you live as fully and as well as you can as you're going through the dying process. And that may be a long process. It may be over many, many months. Um, so it's got a very different uh, mission statement and, and it necessarily involves more than just medicine. It's, it's about psychology. It's about emotional awareness. It's about uh, physical support. It's about social support. It's many things. The, the task that palliative care physicians set themselves is difficult and hugely admirable in my opinion. Now, I promised that I would uh, come back to the uh, interview we did a generation ago, back in 1993. Uh, you told me then, uh, I didn't want to be on television because I could be, because it seems to me that so much of Australian television is like that. I always wanted to be ideas-driven and to be enthusiastic about it and to enjoy it. Currently, I've reached the point where I'm none of these things, so I'd rather go back and do it when I feel I've got something worth doing. Uh, did you, but you, you never took that step away from, from television, did you? So what was, what was going on in your mind at that, at that, at that point in your life, in your early thirties? Well, I actually did take that step away a couple of times and I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, so this is 1993. Yes. Um, so I've been working at the ABC then about five years. Uh, I think I had generated a lot of different shows in quite a short space of time. If you think of it like a musician, I'd done a lot of albums in, uh, trying different styles of music in a short space of time. And there was, there was and still is, for me anyway, a huge nervous tension to being in public in that way. And I never particularly enjoyed that nervous tension. So in essence, it just, uh, it strung me out, it hollowed me out. I did a couple more years of television after that. I went to Channel 7, uh, a show which I remain pretty proud, but it really did leave me. It turned me into a quite unpleasant individual. And so I did step away from television, I think, for five or six years. Uh, I did radio. Um, in fact, twice in my career, my media career, I'd literally just stopped without any idea of what I was going to do next and came home and shut the door And uh, on both occasions for about a year. And that was a really when in doubt, change the routine. That was a really um, good thing to do. Uh, fallow ground, uh, that's how you get a richer crop. And, and it was out of that silence the second time after radio that the uh, idea for Enough Rope and the, and the need for a show like Enough Rope became uh, clear to me. Was this also a period in your life when you were uh, first encountering depression? Uh, actually, at Channel 7, uh, I had uh, encountered depression uh, at different times in my life. And interestingly, we had a, a brilliant family GP who's still a friend. Um, and he had sort of alluded towards it, but I never heard the word. And back in those days, depression, unlike today, where we have Are You OK Day and uh, Beyond Blue and these many, uh, this, this much more open public discussion about mental health, there wasn't really that kind of discussion at that time. So when I started at Channel 7, um, I put myself under enormous pressure. And I, uh, I think after only about eight weeks, it was a live two nights a week tonight show, um, I, had to, uh, I had to take leave for a couple of weeks and mm. um, to get some uh, mental health support. And um, it's one of the things I've learnt 
uh, over the years, but it was a painful lesson. Uh, one of the things, what, what the triggers for me was, um, and I think for a lot of people, is just putting yourself under constant stress. And so the need to be um, more watchful about uh, not burning myself out. And, and I see this a lot, uh, other people I know and people in the industry, it's a very easy thing to do. And I, and I suspect in your profession, uh, also very easy to do, but rarely admitted to. You know, I think Andrew Robb, I always respected the fact that he actually uh, publicly said, I'm struggling with my mental health. Absolutely. Uh, one question which I want to ask you uh, on interviewing just before we uh, move to some final uh, final issues. Uh, where do you draw the line on who to interview and how do you see the, the debate on, on cancel culture playing out? Uh, you interviewed Pauline Hanson and copped a lot of flack for that. Uh, do, you, do you stand by that decision and, and how, how do you draw the line now? Totally I stand by that decision and I... I feel um, some anxiety about what I see as a narrowing of uh, a self-narrowing of the ABC's remit. I argued at the time, and I argue it again now, and and uh, I argued it this privately when uh, Sarah Ferguson interviewed Steve Bannon on the ABC. Um, and the reason I'm restricting this to the ABC is I think the ABC has a an absolutely crucial role to play in this uh, the life of this country. To my way of looking at it, the ABC's role is not to tell people what they should be thinking, but to show people all sorts of different ways of thinking. It's to improve the life of the mind. And um, I had seen Pauline Hanson interviewed many times uh, before we had her on enough rope. Uh, certainly uh, politically, not where I stood. Um, but what I'd seen in those interviews was what I felt was heat and not light. It's impossible to be a, to to pretend to be or to act as though I am oblivious to uh, I think um, reasonable accusations that uh, Pauline Hanson represents um, a strain of Australian thinking which I'll go back to the Natalie and Brudelier question. Let's be nice. Flirts with racism. I think simply getting to that point doesn't necessarily tell you so much. What's more interesting is to try and understand how does this person operate and how have they got there. And in fact, I remember having seen a 60 Minutes profile on her which showed her mum. And her mum had uh, grown up terrified of the yellow peril. So going back to what I was saying before about the crucible of childhood, well, of course Pauline Hanson was going to come into the world with that view because that's what she imbibed. Um, what I felt came out of the Pauline Hanson interview which I thought was a useful revelation, is that I think if you had Pauline Hanson as a neighbour, she'd be a bloody great neighbour. But what was really clear as we talked about the uh, David Etheridge and David Oldfield and these, these men that had kind of manipulated her and, and to some extent done her over in her career, is that she wasn't, she wasn't dangerously bright. And I, I'm, I'm trying to be careful in saying that. I'm not suggesting she's not smart, she's not intelligent. But she didn't have that kind of uh, big picture smarts that's needed to manipulate a political system. And, and really, you know, I think if she, for example, had Nigel Farage's eloquence, then her movement and her party would, be, would have a much bigger footprint in Australian politics. Um, I think in some ways it's, uh, it's, been, it's been good that it's been Pauline, Han Pauline Hanson 
that's been the spokesperson because she's not the best communicator in in uh, in the biz. And I think a really good communicator could have actually uh, carved out a, a bigger footprint. So, um, sorry, that was a very uh, convoluted answer. Uh, to go to your question about cancel culture, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. I, I really struggle with the idea that people, that we mustn't listen to people. To go back to Sarah Ferguson and Steve Bannon, whatever you may think of Steve Bannon and whatever you may think of Trumpism, there is no question that that man and that movement and what it represents has fundamentally changed uh, our world and our political world not just in America, but across the Western world, and we see it in Australia. So if you don't want to sit there and try and find out what it is about, not, not even what this man thinks, but how it is he's managed to be this effective, it's really worth digging into Steve Bannon to see where he got his insights into stirring up uh, the blue-collar, white, male America um, particularly swung in behind Trump. There's a, there's a big lesson in that. And I remember before Trump um, was elected president and I had, I had a couple of running bets that uh, he would be president. I was confident he would be. And I remember talking to a, a pretty experienced journalist here who I like and who I respect. And this person said, well, you know, the people voting for Trump, are, they're stupid. And I said, I, I don't think you're paying attention um, the, the life expectancy of blue-collar Americans uh, has gone backwards um, and uh, almost alone in the Western world. Uh, they saw what happened at the GFC. They saw all these people walk away with billions of dollars while their own wages have stagnated. They have a reason to be angry, and they're not just mindlessly cheering Trump on. They are genuinely angry. So I think it's always uh, valuable if uncomfortable, to pay attention. Attention must be paid, as um, uh, in, Arthur Miller said in Death of a Salesman. And, and so I'm forming a group, Andrew, which I'd like you to join, of fundamentalist moderates, and we will travel the world and slaughter <laughs> anyone that won't see both sides of the argument. So I'm guessing that such a group would be largely populated of people like you and me, uh, middle class, comfortably off white men, uh, who are themselves not necessarily threatened by the sorts of values that are being raised. But I'm thinking of, you know, one of the speeches, powerful speeches in the Senate, just after Pauline Hanson's first speech, um, from uh, the Asian-Australian Senator Bill O'Chee, where he said uh, to Pauline Hanson, around Australia right now, there are Asian kids sitting in class, watching the second hand, dreading that recess is coming, because they know the only place that they're safe from racial taunts is in the classroom and in the playground. They know, they know it's open slather and you've made it worse. You know, isn't it easy for, for people in our socioeconomic position to, to criticise cancel culture because, you know, it's not coming for us? But it is coming for us. It's coming for everyone. I see council culture as a circular gun. Yes, you may be firing it at who you want to fire it at right now, but eventually you're going to fire it yourself because what is the lifeblood of Western liberal democracy? It's doubt. It's open debate. It is the scientific method. And by that, I don't just mean scientific discovery. It's the ability to pick apart ideas and look at what makes them work and what doesn't. And it's the ability to have open discussion and not to be afraid of that open discussion. And 
you know, I think Australia is actually, certainly not without exception, but a pretty good example of uh, the Western liberal experiment working pretty well. You know that old truism that Australians get the politicians they deserve. Well, by and large, um, when Australia has changed governments, it's because they knew that the government they had, time is up. Um, and I think that's, that's because we have a parliament where Bill O'Chee, where Pauline Hans could make her speech about uh, uh, Asians, that, that incendiary opening speech, but we have a parliament where Bill O'Chee could stand up and uh, forcefully rebut it. We had a parliament where Ron Boswell, uh, from her own side of the, the aisle, uh, could dedicate himself to not just picking apart her arguments, but picking apart the associations of her organisation. I think that is healthy. And um, I would always rather have that parliament and that society and that situation where, yes, uh, people are, will and are going to say things which are deeply unpleasant. And that they've been said in this current parliament uh, more times than I would like to uh, recount, but where light is the disinfectant. I think always cast light. Don't shut it down. Don't shut it down because if it's them, quote unquote, being shut down today, then it's you, quote unquote, being shut down tomorrow. Do not create the circular gun. Andrew, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Be kind to yourself. Be kinder to yourself. Um, uh, and, it, you know, that's that old thing that life can only be lived forwards but understood backwards. Uh, I know now that if I had been less um, hard on myself professionally and personally, then um, I would have been uh, a less anxious person and I would have been probably a, a healthier person in all senses. So, yeah, be kind. Be kind. If you're kind to yourself, you'll be kind to others. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that um, uh, a doctor's role was always to ease suffering. And I've come to realise that uh, in some instances, while that may be uh, what they claim is their role, that's not actually what they will do. That um, there are doctors for whom their personal beliefs are more important than the needs of their patients. And I find that uh, conf profoundly confronting. When are you most happy? when I'm able to carve out what I call liquid time, which is time where there's no deadlines, there's no sharp edges of any appointments to bump into, I'm just floating. And uh, uh, usually that's when I'm with my family and um, I think that's how I would like to live the rest of my life, but it's not working out that way just yet. <laughs> this sounds like a version of uh, Michele Chikasechmi's uh, flow concept. Yes, I think so. Um, it's, a, it's a hard state to reach and it, it's literally one where you just go, I could read for an hour or I could read for an hour and a half or I might have a nap or I might go for a walk or I'm just going to listen to that music or I'm just going to sit and watch the birds. Um, it's, it's, it's been deeply uh, in that flow of time. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? 
Uh, liquid time is um, very important. It's real renewal. Uh, I still like playing sport. I'm a fiercely competitive and completely hopeless uh, sports person. Uh, <laughs> but I love... You told me in 1993 you used to be picked as the 12th man for the basketball team. That's that's true, and, and I may have dropped to even lower down the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the order. Uh, but the thing about um, uh, sport, and I, I understand people who don't like sport, uh, but the potential of a ball yet to be hit or kicked is one of the most beautiful things there is. And I firmly believe that sport is the only thing in life where it's possible to have a measurable moment of perfection. Everything else is subjective. But in sport, there's lines and trajectories and arcs and and you actually can. And I actually have a couple of times, despite being physically inept, I have had a couple of moments of sporting perfection where I thought, my God, how did that even happen? Do you have any guilty pleasures? Yeah. Uh, like many people, I suspect chocolate. And... Um, I love watching uh, NRL uh, on television. I like at the end of a week putting my brain in a jar and just watching the football. It's um, it's a perfect antidote to thinking. Just Souths or do you watch other teams too? I watch other teams, I, but I mostly watch Souths. Um, although uh, anyone who knows me from Souths, including Albo, Albo reckons I'm the worst South supporter that ever lived <laughs> because... And this is a true story, Andrew. I'm such an anxious South supporter. I always think we're going to lose. And I did go to see when we were having a a pretty lean time. I went to see us play Canterbury at the SCG and we won unexpectedly. And so I raced home to watch the replay. But I was still nervous watching the replay that we mightn't win. (laughs) Finally, Andrew, which, um, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I, th- I think uh, probably two people. My dad, uh, Kit, uh, one of the things that was very powerfully uh, drummed into us growing up was that idea of um, there is nothing more powerful than an idea that's time has come and to not be afraid to speak your piece if you genuinely believe it. And then the other person um, who passed away late last year uh, is a Victorian doctor called Rodney Syme who... Um, uh, it was probably more responsible for the assisted dying laws passing in this country than anyone. Uh, to very briefly tell you a story, he was a hugely respected uh, urologist in Victoria, part of the medical royalty there, and one day he treated a patient who was in such excruciating pain who asked for his help to end her life, and he, he legally there was nothing he could do, but he was so confronted by this, he knew it was ethically wrong. He said, as a doctor... Um, if I was in that position, I have no doubt that I would choose to end my suffering and I could do that because I have the means to do it. So how can I deny this to a patient? Anyway, long story short, Rodney then spent the the next 40 years of his life at the uh, opprobrium of many of his profession, taken before the Medical Board of Australia, interviewed by police, um, openly assisting people to die, and challenging uh, the police and the courts to put him on trial. And uh, his principled, uh, meticulous um, activism uh, was the the most courageous, practical, active, ethical uh, performance I've seen in, in my life.
Andrew Denton, uh, performer, interviewer, and wise campaigner extraordinaire. Thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Andrew, thank you. Thank you for some very unexpected questions. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past conversations with Sheridan Harbridge, Astrid Jorgensen and Paul Grabowski. We appreciate getting feedback on the podcast, so please tell a mate or leave a rating. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.